Good morning. Glad to have you all here with us this morning. If you would please turn your Bibles to Psalm 62, that will be our text for this morning. It'll also be up on the screen for you. Psalm 62. King David writes, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are but a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. You will render to a man according to his work. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, this morning, we ask that your Holy Spirit would work in power through the proclamation of your word and that it would rightly affect each one here. Do your work in us. We ask for your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Back when I was in college, I went on a mission trip to what was then still the Soviet Union. And I was on a team of about uh, 12 or 15 other students, and one of our professors was leading the team. And one night we got together at a home of uh, a member of the church that we were working with, and we sat down to dinner along this really long table. There's a lot of people there, so we had to fit a lot of people in. But there wasn't quite enough chairs, so my professor was given a stool to sit on. And as we were praying, all of a sudden, we heard a loud crash, and my professor disappeared. Literally, he, he was gone. I had been sitting right across from him, and he was no longer at the table. What actually happened was, I'm sure you surmised that the stool broke, and he was now <laughs> under the, the table. It's kind of an embarrassing position for my professor. But the stool that he was sitting on was unstable. It could not hold his weight, and it collapsed under him. Today, as we begin this message in the Psalm 62, I want to ask, what are you trusting to hold up the weight of your life? In particular, what are you trusting in when you're facing troubles, disappointment, and perhaps even the threat of danger? Is it something stable? 
and permanence? Or is it perhaps something shaky and will eventually collapse under you? Friends, what or who are you really trusting this morning? The psalmist, David, is not shy about who he's trusting in. Four different times we read God alone, only in God, only in him. Only God is his trust. He trusts God alone to sustain him in adversity. God alone is his safety when threatened. God alone is his salvation from the trials of the world and the temptations of Satan. In God alone can his soul be quieted and at rest. God alone is his hope. God alone is all that and more for David, and he is all that for every one of his people, all who have come to faith in him through Jesus. And because he is that, David, King David, is urging us, and here's our main point, he's urging us to wait on God and resist the ways of the world when troubles come. Stated backwards, when troubles come, wait on God alone and resist the ways of the world. David presents this truth to us in three parts that help open our eyes to see God as the one who alone is worthy of our trust. So part one, so our first point, David's expression of trust in adversity. In verses one to four, David makes a confident declaration of trusting God to deliver him from those enemies that are opposing him. This is expressed, as he says, by waiting in silence for God alone. So, of course, we have to ask, what does it mean to wait on God? Commentator John Collins says that to wait on the Lord is to look to him with dependence and trust, not passivity. This is what enables someone to be strong and courageous. So it means to look to him in dependence and on trust. And, and therefore, by implication, it must mean that we have to look to his word, what he says for our help and guidance. As we do, we look to the word, we embrace what it says, we, we entrust ourselves to it, and then in faith we ask God for the help we need to obey it and live it out. That's what it means to wait on God. And all of this is to happen through prayer and in the context of our relationship with God. This is not, we're not just talking about theories. We're not just talking about stuff to know. This is meant to happen within the context of a living relationship with God. So when trials come, even if it's just your day-to-day -day annoyances, what's the first thing do you do? Do you go to God first and pray to him? I can tell you what I do. My typical response is to get annoyed, to feel agitated, to get fretful, and then to get the wheels turning, right? So I, I start to, okay, what am I going to do about this? How can I maneuver and manipulate to make the problem go away? Not so with David. David looked first and foremost to God alone in his time of trouble. And, and his situation was no mere 
annoyance, like mine usually are, uh, he was under attack. His life uh, and his position as king were in danger. But David didn't run ahead of God. He didn't look to figure things out on his own. He knew he needed to trust God's ways and his timing. And that alone. Do you struggle with that? When troubles come, what's your initial response? Do you get angry? Do you get bummed out? Maybe even pouty? Do you get defensive? And if you wonder what your initial response is, just ask those closest to you and they'll give you the answer. Maybe you get manipulative and controlling. Maybe you just, you know, want to ignore it and avoid things. Maybe you just get quiet and act like you got it all under control, but inside you're kind of scrambling or seething. Or do you dive in with all your brilliant intellect and resources to figure things out? Whatever it might be for you, and, and I, I really want to be careful here because God doesn't want to beat us up with this, but all those reactions that I just mentioned may indicate that we're not trusting in God alone in those moments. I'm not saying that there's a total abandon of trust. I'm, I'm, I'm only saying that we're not necessarily quick to trust in God alone when the difficulties come. Because when they come, we might have a trust in God, but then we, they, we bring something up right alongside trusting God to kind of work things out. And maybe they actually take greater prominence than trusting God. And if that's so, then we're not trusting in God alone. I think we may all be prone to that. And I think that's one purpose of this psalm is to help us recognize when we're not. I think the Lord would, would just want us to simply admit Yes, Father, this is true. I, I'm not always quick to trust in you alone. I think God wants to kind of help develop a new spiritual muscle, a new spiritual reflex in us. One that is quick to recognize my slowness to trust or to bring something up in trust along with it. Recognize that quickly and then be quick to turn to God when trials do come. And God is so good. He wants to help us to get to that place. And we're going to talk about that more in a bit, how that can happen. But, but David goes on to say that he waited on God alone in silence. In silence. Now, this does not mean absolute silence and saying nothing because, as we said, waiting on God implies prayer, talking to God connecting with God. This is actually a quieting of the soul that comes from silencing the wrong voices. All kinds of voices out there, aren't there? Whether it's our own foolish voice or the voice of others, we need to silence those voices so that we can actually hear the right voice, the voice of God and come to a place of rest, of quiet. 
How did David get to that quietness? By declaring what he knew to be true about God. Listen to what he says. He says, God is his rock. Meaning that God was his place of permanence and stability. My, my wife and I were watching uh, a, a British drama and in it there was this one beautiful scene and this couple is up on these these stacked rocks up about I don't know 20 30 feet and they're overlooking the whole landscape they, they were in a place of um, safety they were in a place to see if there was trouble or danger coming and so the idea is that that we're, we're on some kind of a high rock cliff above anything or anyone that can harm us. That is who God is for us. But we have to ask, how can David really say that God is his rock when he's got people ready to attack him? I mean, he's vulnerable. How can he say that God is his rock? Because God has been that for him before. David is reminding himself of God's faithfulness in the past, and he's trusting that God will be that for him again in the present and in the future. Has God been that for you? Yeah. Even when things didn't really go your way, right? Things didn't always go well for David. He was chased out of the country numbers of times. But even when things haven't gone your way, God has been faithful to you. And so David is reminding himself of this truth and his, his example encourages us to do the same. This is a good thing. It's a good thing to regularly remind yourself, what, what has God done in the past with his people? What, what has he done with me? What has he done in my family? What has he done in this church? He has been faithful all along. He also calls God my salvation, meaning he trusts God for his timing and his way to deliver him from those enemies. He also calls God my fortress. We don't see a lot of fortresses around here necessarily, but think of a, a huge castle, 50-foot walls that are 30 feet deep, and there is a guard on top of those walls every 10 feet. And they're ready to take down any enemy that approaches it. You are inside that castle. Nothing can touch you. The only one that could get in is God. And he's in there with you. And so no matter what spiritual or physical enemies might do to us, we are in a safe place. In fact, in fact, when we're actually dealing with actual enemies, those who attack us are the ones who are in danger. We're safe, they're in danger. In verse 3, our translation seems to indicate that David is feeling pretty vulnerable. He, he, it says he feels like a wall that's going to crumble or a fence that's going to topple over. However, a number of commentators I've read, and I would agree with them, say that those descriptions are really about David's enemies. They may look strong, they may even bring David some harm, but in the end, they are the ones that are going to crumble like a cheap wall. 
Because they're not just David's enemies, friends. Whose enemies are they? God's enemies. That's right. And it's never good <laughs> to be fighting against God. Now, you may think to yourself, okay, so maybe that happened to David, but what about me? What about when people or circumstances are really, really bad? When serious trials might come, when persecution might come, is God being good and faithful then? Think of our friend Tim Shorey. Terminal cancer diagnosis. He was told he's got 40 months to live. You know what he has to look forward to every day? More pain and more suffering. Day by day, week by week, month by month. Until the 40 months are up. You probably heard of Christians who are martyred for their faith around the world. It's happening all the time. And I'm sure we all know people who have gone through serious heartache and unfair treatment, undeserved trouble. There are people who waited on God. And God may have delivered David at some point, but he's not necessarily delivering these people. How does this all fit together? Do you remember what Jesus said when he was being tried before his crucifixion? He said, my kingdom is not of this world. David was given a kingdom. And God said that kingdom would last forever. David's kingdom was pointing to a future and ultimate kingdom where his future son, Jesus, would be king forever. That's the kingdom that we're in now. And so in that kingdom, we sometimes still wrestle with enemies. Ephesians 6 tells us what? That our struggle is not merely against people, but against who? The spiritual forces of evil, right? Those, those are who are working in our people enemies. But I want you also to remember what Jesus said to Peter. He said, Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. Meaning what? Peter, Satan wants to rattle your faith that you might turn away from following me. But then he says this, but I have prayed for you that you may not fail. Peter's faith was rattled, but it didn't fail. Because Jesus has a greater agenda for us than just delivering us from our trials and annoyances and attacks. He's got a greater agenda. Through the trials, he wants to strengthen our faith that we would remain steadfast in the salvation that he's bringing us. I remember my last couple years of Bible college into my first couple years on the mission field and just wrestling with fear and anxiety. And it went on for years. What, what was that? And I prayed. I quoted scripture. I sought counsel. And God didn't 
immediately take it away. And there were times I was like, God, what are you, what are you doing? And, and then eventually it got better and it got better. And I realized God was using all of that to test my faith, to strengthen my faith. Would I want him or just relief? He used all that to keep me. I, I, I'm not that strong. God did that. God kept me so that I would want him more than I would want deliverance from my troubles. He's got a greater agenda for us. And so God may or may not change your circumstances, but like David, friends, God is your rock. I'm not asking you, is he your rock? He is your rock. He is your refuge. He is your ultimate salvation from all enemies. You are safe in him. You can trust in him alone. But here's, here's the, the rub. We all need help believing that, don't we? We all need help remembering it. And so that's why we have verses 5 to 8 where David, we see David's exhortation to trust. To trust. In these verses, we seem to have a repeat of verses 1 to 2. You look at them, they look almost exactly the same, using much of the same language. The difference is that those earlier verses are David's confident statement of trust, whereas these verses are an exhortation, an appeal to keep trusting. David's telling himself, look, soul, listen up, listen. This is what you need to do. Wait in silence for God to do something. If, if David was so confident in the first two verses, why now this urgent appeal to himself to do that again? Why? Because, as one author wrote, we often find a place of balance and rest in the Lord only to be thrown into turmoil by a new development. I might be doing fine for a time. I got balance. I got rest. I'm doing good. And then something happens to throw me for a loop, and I need to be reminded all over again about what is true about God and what is true about my situation in God. Isn't that often the case? I, I, I was recently meeting with uh, some friends, and we were talking about how to face life's challenges in a Biblical, God-honoring way. And we were reviewing a book, and, and in the book, the author says in order to do that, in order to have those growing, steady, healthy ways of dealing with our challenges, we need to establish ourselves on two foundation stones. Now, I, I need you to track with me here, okay? So I need your attention now. Two foundation stones. Our identity in Christ and worship to Christ. Two stones. We're on those stones. We can make progress for good, healthy response to our challenges. So, knowing who I am in Christ informs how I respond to difficulties, any difficulty, right? What, so what's my identity in Christ? I'm a child of God. I am born again. I'm a new creation. I'm a member of a new kingdom. 
I no longer have to live according to the principles of this world. I am no longer a slave to sin. I don't have to give in to it. I have a new king, and he saved me to seek first his kingdom and to be changed, conformed into the likeness of his son. And so by faith, I put away old kingdom values, and I put on the new values of the kingdom. I'm a new person. I may not be the best person or a perfect person, but I'm new and I'm different. If you're in Christ, so are you. That's our identity, right? That's one foundation stone. Then second foundation stone, then we consider what worshiping Jesus should really look like. Not just when we gather on Sunday mornings and we sing songs. Worship songs is not just worship, not the only thing that worship is. It's all of life and how we respond to what God is saying. Right? So how can I treasure Jesus above everything else so that it affects everything else? I do that by growing in love for God and being concerned for his glory. Being concerned that his supreme excellence is seen in my life and in the world. I do that by growing in love for God, being concerned for his glory, and then loving others and being concerned, ready, for their good above my own. Easy to say, hard to do. So the author of this book says that those two foundation stones keep us in a steady place. Can you imagine if everybody lived like that? Everybody remembered that? Life would be pretty nice. All that grace of God flowing into our relationships and out. From that. Anyway, I'm talking to my friends about this, and we're talking about the two foundation stones, and one of them says, you know what? I'm realizing more quickly when I slip off those stones. I'm realizing that more quickly. And even though change is slow, I'm also getting back on those stones a little bit more quickly. Isn't that beautiful? Even though we really do love God, we, we want to trust Him but sometimes we just get rattled when troubles come. And then we figuratively fall off the rock who is Christ. You probably fall off the rock a lot of times. And when you do, I want you to remember it happened to David. David, the lion killer, the giant slayer. The man after God's own heart. David had to remind himself to wait on God, to depend on him, so that he might not be shaken by those who might want to destroy him. God didn't re reject David because he struggled to get things right. God is patient. Listen, he's patient with us in our struggles. He's patient with you. He really is a loving father who has compassion on his children. I struggle with that sometimes. I struggle with thinking, I got to get this right. If God's going to be pleased with me, I got to get this right. You know what? No, he has compassion on you. Listen to Psalm 103. As a father has compassion on his children, good father, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. 
And he even has compassion on those who are weak in waiting on God. Paul urges the Thessalonians to encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Paul tells them to do that because that's what God's heart is like to us. So you, you can have patience with you in your ongoing struggles because God really is patient with you. And then David makes this amazing statement in verse 8. He says, pour out your hearts before him. God is a refuge for us. I love this verse. You know why? Because it's saying you go and talk to God about everything that's troubling you. Go to God with every sin struggle. Go to him with every frustration and pain and disappointment. You don't, you don't need to clean up your prayers to go to God. You, you, you ever do this? Sometimes I kind of trick myself. I'm like, I'm, 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 I'm kind of off a little bit, but then I pray to God kind of like I'm back on. You don't have to clean up your prayers. I mean, he knows anyway. You don't need to hide anything or act like everything's okay. Go to him with the ugliness, the weakness, the struggles, the fears, the sin. Pour it out to him. Why? Because God really wants to help you with those struggles. Biblical counselor Esther Smith says this. this is a quote. I hope it's going to be on the screen. God invites us into his presence. Is it up there? Yeah. God invites us into his presence where he can transform even our uncensored thoughts. That's exactly what he's telling us to do here. We can dump out all the cares of our hearts to God. Only when we speak about the thoughts we actually have can we work through them and get to a place where we're seeing clearly and believing rightly. Got to get it out, but get it out to the right person. Get it out to God. Pastor Tim Keller has called this kind of praying pre-reflective outbursts from the depths of your being in the presence of God. I love that, right? But what does it mean? Pre-reflective. Um, pre, of course, means before, right? So before we're rightly reflecting on God and who we are in him and what he wants, before we're rightly reflecting that way, we just let him know everything that's going on inside of us. Just let it out. The psalmists do it regularly. Why wouldn't we follow their example, right? They go to God like he's a trusted friend that they can be absolutely honest with. And when we do, we, we can then begin to ask God, with the help of the Spirit, Father, how do you want me to think about all this? What I'm feeling and experiencing and what I'm questioning, is, is this right? Is this how I should be thinking? God, remind me of what you've done. Help me to think of how you want me to think. And what help do you have for me right now? It happened to me in the middle of the night last night. It happened to me the night before. Where I wake up, I think of something, and all of a sudden I'm in a panic. And I'm like, oh, oh. you know what I do? I try to read to avoid the panic. It's not super panic, it's just anxiety. 
I try reading something, I try thinking of something else, and, and it doesn't go away. You know what happens? God, how do you want me to think about this? What truth from your word do I need right now to address this? What truth do I need to meditate on so that I might come to a place of quiet, but I let him know how I'm feeling? God wants to work through this, wants us to work through this with him because he wants us to have him. Him. Not just right thinking about him, not just right theology about him. We need all that to get to right thinking, but he wants us to have him. Psalm 119 says this, it's good, it was good for me that I was afflicted. Hmm. Good that I was in trouble, good that I was in pain, good that I was suffering. It was good that I was afflicted, that I might know your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. God's law is the psalmist's greatest treasure. And the law here refers to all of God's word. So he's not just talking about a bunch of commands that we have to keep. He's talking about all that God says in his word. He wants to know that, that in order to know the lawgiver, in order to know the heart, the character, the beauty, the excellence of the lawgiver himself. God is concerned that we are deeply connected to him especially through our afflictions. Another quote by Esther Smith, she says, our thoughts are transformed not through force and willpower, but through relationship and connection. Through relationship and connection. Remember those words. God's presence is powerful because in it we encounter his character, we see, we see who he is and what that means for our lives. Friends, this is what our souls need most. Most. Relationship and connection. And remember this. You are welcome to connect to God in that way. You are welcome to pour out your heart to him because Jesus did that as well. He poured out his heart in the garden that he might pour out his blood on the cross. And he did that so that we might know the grace of forgiveness and the goodness of friendship with God. I want a friendship with God. I want a growing friendship with God. I want that for you. I want that for this church. I want God to work that in us. I think you want that too. So far, we've talked about David's expression of trust in trouble. We learned about exhorting ourselves and others to trust in God through those struggles. And then lastly, in verses 9 to 12, we learn about this. The outcome of misplaced trust and the outcome of well-placed trust. The outcome of misplaced trust, the outcome of well-placed trust. In verse 9, we see who we are not to trust in. It says, don't trust in those of low estate or high estate. What's this about? Well, he's, he's saying whether it's dis, dishonorable people or reputable people, all people and their supposed power have no lasting effect. They're like a puff of air. Ready? 
That's it. That can't even blow out a candle. That's all they are. That's how little they can do to thwart the purposes of God for his people. So don't put hope in what people can do or not do for you. Then in verse 10, David adds, not to hope in monetary gain, either illegitimately or legitimately. Illegitimately would be through extortion and robbery, right? That's bullying and stealing. My guess is most of you are not going that way. But then he says this, if riches increase, that is, even if you're making money in a legitimate way, don't put your hope there. Don't do it. If your hope is there, your life or what you hope to get out of life will be a delusion, David says. And here's why. Because anyone can have some measure of power, whether it's through money, position, influence. Anybody can have some power, and it feels kind of good when you have it. Anybody can have that power. But if there is no love, in the end there is only restless grasping for what will never satisfy the deep longings of our souls. To, to desire power apart from love is to deaden the heart. Is that how you want to live? With a dead or dying heart? But in verses 11 and 12, we discover that with God, with God, there is ultimate power and ultimate love. Through faith in Jesus, we experience both because power and love come together perfectly in Jesus. In him, we see the God who is not only loving, he, that he has good intentions for you, but he's the only God who is powerful enough to be all that you need to know life to the full. And here's how we know. Because Jesus didn't stay dead. That's power, right? Jesus died on the cross, right? Anybody can die for our sins. I'm going to die for your sins. But if he comes to life from the grave, if he raises to life, that is power to say, I will forgive your sins and I will destroy everything that will destroy life for you. Sin, death, hell, Satan. That is power. And he did it because of love. Power and love working together. And then in verse 12, when all is said and done, David says that God will render a man according to his deeds. This is not teaching salvation by good works. You know, if you try to do more good stuff than bad stuff, and somehow you'll make yourself right with God. No, Scripture is clear. It is by grace through faith and that alone that we are saved, not a result of any good works. So what is this telling us? It's telling us that whatever you bank your life on, remember my professor in the stool? Okay. Whatever you bank your life on will manifest itself in how you live. Whatever you trust is going to come out in how you live. If your trust is in yourself, it's in money, in power, or the ways of the world, that will be evidenced by a self-directed life with no genuine love or regard for God. That makes it sound like anybody who's not in Jesus is kind of a rotten scum. 
And that's not true, right? There, there's plenty of people who do a lot of good things. I got a family member who are, who are really nice. And they do a lot of nice stuff. But even if they do, if there is no real faith, if there, then there's no real new pattern of godly living that grieves over sin and turns from sin. If that's how they're living, no matter how many good things they got going on, there's no real faith, then their lives will collapse before God. And friends, if, if you're in that place this morning, God wants you to know he doesn't want you to stay there. He wants you to know that there's real hope and there's real joy and there's real meaning and there's real life in Jesus and he will give that to you. And so he says, come, come, trust in my son and I will give you that life. And if your trust is in God alone, listen now, even if you slip off the rock sometimes, but then you keep getting back on, if your trust is in him, then that will be seen in a life of good works that reveal this is who you really are. This is the reality of faith in God alone, in God who is worthy of your trust. So what are you building your life on? Where is your hope? Is it in God alone? That's my prayer. That's my prayer for myself. And that's my prayer for you this morning as well. May it be so. Look to God. Pour out your hearts to him. Amen. Father in heaven, we ask that our souls would wait in silence for you alone. It is true. Our hope is only from you. You alone are our rock. Be that for us as we come to you in humility and faith. You alone are our salvation and fortress. Be that to us so that we will not be greatly shaken. We pray in Jesus' name.